This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Buzzard Roost Saddles. Buzzard Roost Saddles was born in the swamps of Santa Ma, South Louisiana, and their purpose is to get you standing over your next carcass so you can pick them clean. Proudly made in the USA, every Buzzard Roost Saddle is handcrafted with a patent-pending system that brings you independent angle adjustments on your top and bottom panels to provide ultimate comfort. Standing by their motto, we ain't fancy, Buzzard Roost helps you get the job done without making things overcomplicated. If you're looking for the next tool in your hunting arsenal, you can connect with Buzzard Roost Saddles on Facebook and Instagram, or you can visit their website at buzzardroostsaddles.com. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Hunt the Wild podcast. I'm your host, Adam Bolds. And today I'm joined with a, uh, a previous guest. I think he's from episode 21, uh, Michigan resident, um, hunts some private farms up there, Jake Bollinger. Um, last time I had him on, we talked a lot about journaling and kind of documenting your hunts and stuff. But today we're going to try to work on some tactics, uh, talk a little bit about mock scrapes, um, maybe some of the different ways you can utilize cameras and, and stuff like that. So I'm going to bring Jake in now. Um, how you doing, Jake? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah. Thank you for uh, coming back on. I, I was just looking at last time you were on the, on the show and it seems like it was just a couple months ago, but it was more than, you know, it was episode 20 or 21, I think, and we're almost to 50 now. So, um, nice. But I'm going to have you introduce yourself and kind of tell a little bit about yourself for people that maybe didn't catch the the other episode with you. Um, it is episode 20 or episode 21. Let me look here for you guys if you guys want to kind of catch up and and meet Jake for the first time on the on the Hunt the Wild podcast at his first episode. Um, it's episode 21. It's called Farm Management, Pope and Youngs, and Documenting Your Hunts. So. Uh, you may want to pause this episode and go back and listen to that one, or you may just uh, continue listening. But Jake, can you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and where you're from and all that good stuff? Yeah. Um, born and raised in Southern lower Michigan. Um, lucky enough to have uh, in-laws that have a family farm and I have my own farm adjacent to that to add on to some private land that I'm, I'm hunting um, and managing. So I uh, got into hunting a long, long time ago by my oldest brother, um, got me into doing all kinds of deer hunting first, you know, and foremost, and then we started going into small game and stuff like that. So I've uh, done quite a bit outdoors and just love to love to deer hunt and love to pattern and scout them. So, yeah. So I remember last time you were on, we were talking about, um, it was either your book or I think maybe your grandpa's book or something that uh, had some memories or some dates or some data in it. Um, but today we're going to, instead of focusing on journaling and, and keeping track of everything, we're going to go into more, um, scouting and prepping for deer season. We're kind of at that time of year now where everybody's running cameras, mm -hmm. um, and food plots and, and stuff like that. So, um, I guess to start off, what are some of the ways that you like to scout and gain Intel for upcoming season? Can you just kind of list a couple or maybe you have a ton i don't know yeah no i mean a few different ways and don't get me wrong i'm i'm not lucky enough to be out every night doing it but uh, when i'm able to go out and doing it um you know i'm in ag country 
So there's not a ton of elevation change, but there's a little bit of hills here and there. But, uh, you know, I really like to dri honestly drive around and I know most of the fields and what they are. Um, so that kind of tells me where and what direction I'm going to go based on the time of year and what they're, you know, what they're hitting on or what they're normally hitting on that time of year. So, um, truck and then, I, you know, I use, uh, spotting scopes and stuff like that out of the truck, or I've even got up in our, in our barns, looked out, you know, out windows out of the barns just to get advantage point over, you know, backfields and rolling hills and stuff. Um, or even I've gone as far as getting out in my tree stands and sitting, you know, not and normally that's not midsummer like right now, but uh, a month before time, I'll use an observation stand just to see what's happening. So now, do you only hunt private ground or do you do any uh, public land hunting? You know, nowadays, nope, I just stick to the private ground. You know, I've got enough of it, got a really good thing going and leave that ground for guys that aren't as fortunate, I guess. <laughs> so you probably have your spots down pretty well of where you can kind of glass from the truck and everything since you're on, um, you're in kind of a, a barrier per se, I guess, versus somebody that could, you know, drive around to different spots on public land. So um, you usually hit those spots, those same spots, or correct me if I'm wrong, maybe you have different spots, but is that something that you, you hit the same spots every time you scout from the truck? Um, it depends on the time of the year. So, you know, early season alfalfa fields, those are prime around here. That's where you'll see the most deer at, at least in my area early. So I know where most of the ag fields are that are alfalfa around me just from driving around and being around, you know. Um, so I'll go and hit those spots from public roads, you know, nothing, not going trespassing or nothing and seeing what I can see and, and stop and glass, you know, I'll just sit there and glass field edges to see what's happening um, mostly evenings. I don't get to go too many mornings, but, uh, there is a lot of times that I'll take some extra laps around the farm before I go out and about to work. So, um, using the truck and the spotting scope is a really good way early spring alfalfa. And then it starts transitioning into the beans as the beans get a few inches taller. And then, you know, most of the deer are going to be in the bean fields in the afternoons. So you can kind of start narrowing it down in ag country of where you kind of want to look. And don't just look on your property, you know, look around it. Even that goes same with, you know, public land. If you find private land that's farmed, you can see a lot of the deer that are going to be in those uh, private or public land, excuse me, eating out into them um, private fields. So um, I like to use several mile radius just to see what's out there and get an inventory of what's out there. It's by no way, shape or form anything you can judge your, your fall off over your hunting season because they're nowhere near where they're going to settle down to being. So just kind of taking an inventory, getting around, getting some, some acres in, I guess, if you will, and finding them. Well, it's definitely, if work's on enough motivation or money's on enough motivation to get you up in the morning, I guess scouting for deer is. So that can be your excuse. Yeah, it's um, funny. I call, call it my velvet tour because I just go out <laughs> and I kind of have a little bit of a route that I know I'm going to take and not go too far out of my way to get to work. Um, why why drink morning coffee when you can just look at deer yeah right right <laughs> so i i think you talked a little bit about the boundaries and stuff um i think it's interesting because if you use onyx i don't know if you're familiar with it but um pretty much anytime you open something and you click um let's say a specific property it's going to have a square or a boundary around it i think a lot of people probably more so new hunters get caught in the 
in that aspect of just looking at that square, say we're talking about mm -hmm. a 50 by 50, they, they don't right. take the time to look at the, how the deer would see it without the square and it just being a normal like topo map or whatever. Um, that makes sense. It's kind of confusing, but, um, yeah, I think looking at neighboring properties, that's a, that's definitely a big thing. If I was going to buy property, um, not only looking at the property, but looking at surrounding properties would be super mm -hmm. important. So, um, so I guess when you're out scouting, um, maybe this applies to you maybe it doesn't since you're not a, a a public land guy but is there ways or what ways do you kind of mark off spots so you don't have to maybe booger them up um maybe you're used maybe you're used to knowing where you can and can't go but um is there any way to mark off spots so you don't have to put boots on the ground and spend hours and hours looking for places where there might not deer yeah i mean right now if you're talking about this time of year mid-july there's really no reason to get on the ground and do a whole bunch of intrusive stuff when you can do in my opinion the most productive from a vehicle from roadsides even back roads stuff like that i know you can't get to everything but you can get a pretty good idea where most of the deer are at that time of the year but you got to kind of know at least in the, in the private land areas where they're going to um, transition from from now until then it, it's they'll change it's kind of a crapshoot depending on what bucks get taken in the area and i'm sure public is no different but uh yeah just taking an inventory of everything around it um i guess so you're saying that you, you usually don't go into your properties to kind of keep from messing up the deer unless you probably have to pull a camera or you are doing some kind of farming thing um but when, when does that change, like the observation stand? You say you'll go into a property maybe a month prior to season? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I'm basically watching the deer when they start to make their change to the soybean fields and when they're really and where, what areas they're hitting in the soybean fields, because that'll tell you where to start looking backwards where they're coming from. Um so I use that to my advantage of knowing where the doe groups are going to be at right at that time of year, early season. Late season is going to be a real good time to come back to um, for hunting. So this time of the year, I go only in there to put my cameras out, um, which I use, you know, some cell cameras in certain key areas um, on, on key things, some mock scrapes and stuff that we'll talk about later. But other than that, I don't get into the woods and do any scouting this time of year. Um I don't know. I just don't feel like there's any information I'm gaining at that point because they're all going to change come hunting season. Oh, something that I, we weren't going to talk about, but we are going to now, I think, because you, you've touched on it. And, and I know probably a lot of people know this, but I know there's a lot of people out there that don't, but you being a farmer and being more familiar with, with plants and stuff like that, soybeans, can you kind of talk about um, deer and soybeans and how, when they get super ripe or ready to like um, harvest or they kind of go through their stages where they change colors. Can you talk a little bit about how deer react to, to the soybeans kind of changing? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, when they're green and they're poking up, the deer are mowing them off. So they're only eating the leaves, you know, obviously right now there's no bean on it yet. Um, they're only eating the leaves, which are packed with protein. So they'll, uh, they'll go as soon as they pop up until they're, they keep staying green. They're in there mowing on those leaves pretty hard. Um, 
as uh, fall progresses and the, the age of the bean progresses, then the leaves start to turn yellow color. Um, and you'll see that the deer pretty much stop eating them, at least around me. They don't, they kind of start avoiding those areas and stick to the green area. So you can really dissect a field and how they're using it based off of, you know, the, the green color of the plant or the age of the plant, maturity of the plant for that time of year. And then as it progresses and dries, then of course it, it turns brown and the leaves fall off of it. And at that point, uh, the deer come back to it. Most of the time they're on the corn in that time. And then they come back to it, you know, late season for the beans, which are you know great for them. So now let me ask you this. You may or may not know that that transition of the color and all that stuff. And when, when the deer avoid the soybeans, do you know what it is? Does it like it lose all of its nutrients or something? I mean, is uh, yeah, there a reason why they don't like it? Do you know? I'd have to guess that it's not as pal palatable anymore. You know, it's drier. It's not holding the nutrients that the green leaf has, obviously, because the plant's killing it off. So I would imagine it's just they know that it's not really worth it anymore. It doesn't have what they're looking for. So at that, that point, the corn is pretty mature, so they know where to go after that. And they're just transitioned right from that into that uh, corn for a while, and then they'll be right back to them beans pretty heavily. Now, let me lay this little scenario out for you here, because I know that there's I know I've had this issue and I know there's other people that have, but let's pretend, um, let's just say we're on a 50 by 50 acre square just to make it easy. Um, and the, the soybeans have changed now. The, the deer have gone somewhere. Well, there's a woods and that field on that 50 and then maybe two miles down the road, there's corn. What do I do? I mean, but let's pretend it's public. So we'll say that there's two miles down the road, there's corn. Do I head to the woods of the acorns or do I pack up two miles and hope I see my buck down there? Well, I mean, in my area, yeah, I would be looking more towards the cornfield at that point, you know, because really? the acorns aren't a huge, a big enough draw when there's this much prime ag around. So, they're, you know, they have a smorgasbord. So the alfalfa, obviously those fields go through changes a lot. The deer will be in them good when they're, you know, when it's a little more mature, but when it's fresh cut, there's obviously a several weeks at that point that they're not really in as much. Don't get me wrong. You'll still have some of them in it, but not as heavily. So then you get that bean to come into the factor. So it kind of, kind of rotate where they're at based off of really what they're looking for. So, so if you were, if you were watching a buck and then he, let's say he disappeared for a week, um, and the corn and the soybean situation was the same, but it, it, you know, it was two miles away. Would you pack up and go down there? I mean, that, that depends on how much you're really scouting. If you got cameras out and you know, he's still in the area. No, I'd hunt until I know he's not in the area, but I definitely shift my patterns as the beans kind of start getting in that weird funky stage. I know I can go over to the corn edges and cornfields and see that is where the transition of deer has shifted at that point. And same with alfalfa. It depends on the timing of the alfalfa, too, of where you'll see the deer shift. You just start feeding those doe groups and know where to go, and the bucks are going to follow them. Now, I've read a lot about, um, or I shouldn't say I've read a lot, but I've, I've seen stuff online and forums and different things where, and I haven't, I've never had this opportunity, but people say when you have corns, corn and beans butted up against each other. I mean, they may be across a ditch line or like maybe cross the road or whatever. They say that that's 
supposed to be like a killer setup. What do you think about that? Soybeans yep. and corn. Yeah. Oh, you ever experienced that? Yeah. Oh yeah. Every, every single year, every oh, okay. year yeah, I have that, you know, between alfalfa and corn, soybeans and corn, you know, just standard hay and corn. Um, yeah. I, that's basically, it's a, every year and it just rotates. So you got to find where those hard lines are because the deer definitely, definitely use those hard lines. And you'll see that in the beans too. They'll have the first 20 feet of those, those hard lines mowed right off. And then they can stay right next to that corn or get into the cornfield. Um, so you use those to your advantage of setting up on the ends of those, knowing that that's kind of a pinch point that they're going to funnel down through, uh, especially if you have some elevation change and you know that they're going to try to stick below that ridge line to keep themselves from being skyline. So you, you can really kind of put the deer right in your lap, just using existing ag fields that way. Yeah, it's a, it's amazing. Um, just, you know, you may have a bean field for a couple of years. I know around here, I, I think they're supposed to rotate, but I've seen fields that have been planted nothing but beans for 10 years. But yeah. it, it's funny if you were to plant corn in there, how much of a, a difference the deer route would travel. It's just crazy how um, geography and stuff like that kind of dictates what they do but and washouts I, washouts are a huge thing too that, that yeah because the deer love to run the rows and when they get to those washouts that's where they can really shift easily to other rows so i've used that still hunting to an advantage um and deer season where i know unfortunately you know don't get me wa don't get me wrong washouts are not good but it happens <laughs> in places and you know certain sections of fields just the corn dips yeah, a little dip in the corn is a great spot to set up either a trail camera if you can, if it's on an edge, uh, to see deer crossing through and using that as a turn, or even hunting out of. I, I've popped up blinds in corn, you know, standing corn, take out eight or ten, you know, sections and pop a blind right there so you can see it. And it, that is also a, a good way to hunt a, a large cornfield. I have to find a podcast that's been done on hunting washouts because I've never heard that. But, you know, now that you say it, um, a few years ago, I, long story short, I was trying to kill this deer, ended up shooting a doe, but they were, I was trying to kill a buck, didn't kill him during season, ended up shooting a doe in that field. But they were following this path, you know, and crossing the field and going into the other woods. But now that you mention it, there was a washout right there um, and they were coming through that. I just thought that, you know, they were coming through. It was real flooded and, and murky and mucky, but I never – washouts is never something that's been on my radar. Yeah, yeah, they can – it just seems to be e they're easy for them. You know, it's yeah. – uh, they know that's the turn in the highway that they've got to make, and they can take a bunch of different paths from that, you know, through the cornfield. So mm -hmm. I've actually had very good luck. This buck – oh, this one right here is actually where I got his first – trail camera picture of him was on a washout of a cornfield where he came out of the center of the corn, came down the washout right to my camera and then turned to the edge of the field. So I knew he was using that corridor um, as a travel route and that was in velvet. So it was pretty early on in season about now, actually. They're always taking that uh, easiest path of travel unless there's exactly. danger. No, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. So I guess we'll kind of shift to, we were kind of, we're going to go back and forth with, with being in the woods and being in the truck and scouting and stuff like that. But when putting boots on the ground, specifically you're going out a month before, you know, trying to sit in an observation stand, whatever. Is there anything you do specifically to help you from 
from spooking and alerting deer? Are you like a, a spray down with scent killer guy or like go out there in a trash bag? So like, mm -hmm. I don't know, like, is there anything you do in particular? Maybe you don't wear shoes or something. I mean, there's some crazy shit out there. So no, I no. I mean, if I'm getting out walking and trying to get to big hilltops to overlook, you know, valleys or stuff like that. Um, I, I wear my rubber boots, you know, that's not only just for scent. I don't want to leave a ton of scent down. Um, I'm not terribly concerned about it, especially right now, this time of year, I don't get too overly worried. Obviously I don't want to blow it right at him to spook the field that I'm trying to watch. You know, I want to keep it away from me, but I'm not too careful about it. I'm, I'll, I'll go to the field and I'll rub dirt all over my boots and stuff, but I don't use uh, scent killer scent sprays. That's just what I do. Every single time I go hunt, I'll, I'll get fresh dirt, kick it all over my boots run it up inside both sides of my boots and I call that good enough and, and obviously keep the wind to my advantage. But yeah, I don't worry too much about spooking them this time of year. You know, if I'm going in to do a trail camera and stuff, I just, I kind of make it seem like I'm not in there trying to be quiet, not trying to be sneaky. Like yeah. hey, I'm here and I don't care if you hear me and I just get in there, get my stuff done. And I just get back out. I wear, you know, rubber boots, shorts, I'm not, I don't care about my hands. I use my hands on it. Um, I've always, always put my trail cameras about six feet off the ground and have a little bit of a tip to them. You know, find that little stick that's about the perfect size to have an angle down. Um, and I've just seen that the mature deer don't seem to look at it as much. They don't seem to notice it. I've had trail camera pictures where they're staring right at it, just mm -hmm. froze. And then they're they're That's gone. the last time you see them. <laughs> and then I started getting used to uh, using my trail cameras on, you know, if you're lucky enough to have it, multiple picture and then a video. That has been absolute game changer for me because I know I would have missed certain things that were happening without that video after the picture. So that is something. And then if they don't, I just run straight video on my cameras. But uh, I just go in there, get that baby hung get it over a spot. And I like to trim just as much as I can out in front of it and above it and around it, anything that the wind's going to blow it. Cause you're going to have a bunch of false pictures. You know, I'm finding that out as the more and more cameras that I'm running, how I've really got to open more up than I would have thought during windy days. Um, so that's kind of one of the drawbacks of at least putting it in the thick stuff. But I try to get it right on them field edges where I know they're pinching down to come out to those, those washouts, those inside corners of fields and fingers of woods, good spots to put those. If you're going in there after them right now. So we kind of talk, we talk a little bit about, you know, your kind of how you trim out for your cameras, but I, I want to like dive even like deeper into it. Like your camera process, if that makes any sense, I want to know like maybe why you're putting cameras in these certain places and why you only run six instead of eight, you know, just, I want the real specifics on your, on your camera process for, for summertime. And when does it change or does it change? It changes actually quite frequently. I'll move them around, especially my SD card ones. If I know that I've got to go in and check it, I move those to different parts of the field or different fields. Like I was talking about, like if I, if I see my neighbors cutting the hay field that I'm um, next to that I'm able to hunt, I'll pull a couple of cameras off that because I know it's not going to be as productive. Don't get me wrong. Some deer still go to it. There's always those oddballs, um, but the most deer will, most of them will shift off. So I know I can pull the camera and put them in other locations. You know, then I'll start 
layering them a little heavier around soybean fields and, and known thickets in between them, edges of soybean fields, especially like fingers, like any kind of um, either dip in terrain or woodlot coming out. Those inside corners are always really, really good. Um, just good funnel and good pinch points of, of travel. So you can cover that with one camera generally if you look at the, the trails pretty well and see how they come and intersect. Now, how many cameras do you run total? Do you know? Um, right now I've got six because I just had two more die, which right now I run, um, half cell cameras, the Tacticam Reveal X and then half SD cards, which are kind of mutts, a little bit of everything, but I've had more mold trees go bad on me than any other camera. And I've had a lot of trail cameras, but mold trees have been a, a tough one for me because I, I keep buying them and they keep dying. And so I, I guess it's my own fault, but now I'm pretty much switching over to uh, the Tacticams if I'm going to buy a new one. It's just nice to be able to get in there, leave them sit somewhere, check it for a couple of weeks. You know if it's getting hit or not. If it's not, get it out. Um, but, you know, that uh, links to some of the mock scrape that I was talking about. I am a firm believer on um, the mock vine scrape. I've used it now for a few years, and it took me a little while to figure out really where to put them for my trail cameras. But once I found out that sweet spots of, you know, those inside corners, again, like of fields where, you know, deer are either going to cut that field edge or they're just coming to dump out to the field on that. It's a good spot to put it right in the center of a trail and then a trail camera right on top of that. And you know, you'll catch a lot of deer. And once it gets hit, it's, it's just amazing how much the deer will react with that. If you, you, you got to get in a good travel, travel path, but right on the trail and it, that's a good spot for my trail cameras all year long. I put them out as early in the spring as I can to establish a, tra a you know path of travel or in path of use and monitor them all, all summer via trail camera. So that way, you know, what's kind of going on too. That's part of my scouting. So um, I guess in the case, you, you, you know, because you have six cameras or whatever, but if you had, let's say you had 10 trail cameras and they're all um, they're all spread out over, over public land or a giant piece of private land. Do you label your cards? Like, you know what I'm trying to get, I'm getting at is like you go in and you pull like 10 cards, but do yeah. you keep track of which cameras they come out of, or do you know your areas well enough where you can just look at the photos i do i can tell by the photos and, and tell where most of them are but still i i label each camera and then i leave i have two sd cards for each for camera each camera yeah yep, so that way there's one in it and i have a fresh one whenever i go out to it so obviously i can swap out batteries just change sd card or pull it and have a new sd card anyways and, and start over somewhere new but i i label them camera one and then sd card both of them have a one and a one so I know both of those are just for that camera. They're formatted. I don't have to worry about it because I screwed myself one time on an SD card one of not formatting the SD card. And it sat for a long time in a good area. I was seeing deer from a long ways away and didn't get anything. So I learned that, that just spend the extra hundred bucks or whatever it is on some, some more SD cards. And then I label camera two, you know, two, two. Yeah. So it just down the line. So. I, I always carry, I've been in that same situation. I actually had a camera was it last year I left out for 
a very long time. It was like six or seven months. And I'm so excited I stayed out of there. I just kind of wanted to get the transition of the seasons and everything and how the deer were changing. Walked back there so excited. Looked on the camera, zero pictures. It said no SD card. I was heartbroken. So I, I know how that feels. So always carry an extra SD card. I always yep. carry like two or three extra ones because I've actually got cameras that will uh, not take certain SD cards. I'll try to put a card in it. It will reject it. I'll go to the next camera and try to use that card again. And it'll take it. So they're funky. Actually, I do have some of them that only take certain size, you know, cards can't have one of them or two of them or only 16 gigabyte, which that gets me, or oh. had gotten me all the time. Yeah. But now that I have them all numbered like that, I at least know which all of them go to, but most of them are, you know, 32 gig or less is, is what they can accept. So yeah, that's, that was another reason why I decided I needed to, to number them. Cause I was just getting them mixed up depending on what they were, but. So I want to kind of jump back to, um, truck scouting. I know, let's see, we covered, you know, kind of what you're doing. You're kind of, for you, you're kind of driving to a lot of the same spots. Um, and maybe if you're on public, you'd probably be doing that too, driving to a lot of the same spots, but. I just uh, drive around anywhere too. You know, I don't, I'm not afraid to go. 15, 20 miles away and just check to see what's around, you know, yeah. that's not, obviously not thinking they're coming to my farm, but <laughs> see what they're doing and learn kind of what, how they're using the fields. Cause you can use that in all areas. At least I believe. Yeah. Um, it's, it's always good to sharpen up on knowledge cause you can always, seems like you can always apply it. Um, mm -hmm. you know, even on your own piece of property, yep. what, what all do you carry? in your vehicle when you scout i mean are you carrying binoculars a spotting scope do you have one of those fancy ones that like hooks to your window i do have one but it's not that fancy is it, it worth like, it? it yes absolutely yeah i thought it was just because it was it was easy and i can clamp it down and i can drive around and you know some of the back roads kind of slow and yeah and look. like last year I, I did a lot of morning scouting I just leave my house and I go down my lane real slow up into the top of a hill and I knew I could overlook a couple of fields from there. So I'd clamp it on and just drive and then the deer would look at me, but I'd be already ready and I could see, you know, see them and not spook them too bad. Uh, so they'd stay out there. And But yeah, I use uh, just a um, Vortex spotting scope and uh, Vortex binoculars. Pretty sure it's Vortex, yeah. So nothing fancy, nothing special, but that's what I always have is the binoculars and the spotting scope. Generally, I'm using the binoculars first to see if it's anything worth, you know, sitting around or, you know, sometimes causing a scene because I've had people, what are you doing? You know, what? you're not trespassing. I'm like, no, I'm just, just looking at deer. I swear, I promise. I'm just, you know, velvet deer look. And most of the time I'll offer a chance for them to look through the scope. And so... <laughs> But yeah, it, that's happened a couple of times, but that's all I, that's all I use when I'm just driving around. And like I said, you get to know an area of kind of what's happening and then you just go through those fields and check them all. Nothing, so, nothing special. So your, your main, um, kind of like the, let's see, the order that it goes in would be scout from the truck, then maybe hang some cameras, boots on the ground then hunt, right? Yeah, if you're selling from a truck, you can, you know, sit back on a hillside and check to see how the deer are coming in and out of that field and go there several times. You know, don't just look at one night and say that's how they're using the field. Obviously, you got to pay attention to the wind. So this is where some of my journaling will come into. And I'll I'll write notes down of how the does are using the field this time of year. I don't 
obviously if I see some nice bucks, that's awesome. That's really what I'm going for. But most of my movement notes are on what the does are doing because they're going to continue to do that pretty regularly as long as nobody messes with them. So you'll know the intel for later in the season. But uh, I'll watch from afar, see how they're really using fields for certain wins. And then that's when I'll, if I need to go scout new land, uh, um, that's when I would go in and start looking at those places where I know that I've seen them come out. Okay. On this wind, they're coming from this area on this wind. They're coming from that area and throw a couple cameras up. So um, the last episode we did was a lot on journaling. And I, I recall talking about journaling your hunts, but I don't recall talking about journaling, you know, your scouts or your, um, but I guess that's something you do, right? I, I, I guess it just, yeah. I guess I thought of it as more like, obviously I scout and put stuff on my phone, but I don't really like journal like wind directions and stuff. I'm not really thinking about that a whole lot until deer season. It seems like, but it sounds like you should be. Well, yeah. I mean, they're establishing patterns of use based off of those winds that they feel comfortable going into those fields. You know, the, they're still not dumb in the summer. I mean, don't get me wrong. They tolerate way more in the summer than they would any time close to season. Mm-hmm. But they're definitely still using things to their advantage, obviously. They're, they still have other predators to worry about. So I'll, I'll think about that on how I'm looking at fields or how I'm you know driving down roads. And I, I look at, like you said, Onyx. I use Hunt Stand for everything. Um, I'll make uh, pins and then drop notes in it, you know, mm-hmm certain things in there um you one of your episodes turned me on to a hunting journal app uh, trophy tracks trophy tracks yep and i'm excited to get to start using it i haven't got to use it as much um when scouting as i'd like to just because it's been kind of quick trips but i'm going to use that app and i can tell you i'm I'm really going to use it just because i love those finite details of journaling and i think that's going to make it super easy and i'm going to use that during scouting too you know, here as I remember that I have it, how it works. And so, yeah, yeah, scouting, definitely make notes because year after year, you'll get patterns down of how the deer are using it in your area. Then you'll start getting the patterns of where those deer disperse come fall. So the notes and the journals are going to be big. Yeah. um, I, I, it may have been in the episode. I'm not sure, but I remember at least consciously thinking, that you were going to like that episode because we had talked so much about journaling. And then I was like, he's going to love this. It's all on his phone. No more notebook, no more notes. It's like, Oh, there. Um, but, um, Jake's talking about, let's see here. Uh, episode 45 with Dan Hansel. He's the, uh, the founder of trophy track. So check that episode out. If you're into journaling too, along with, um, Jake's episode on, on 21. But, um, I guess we're going to dive into mock scrapes here. We're going to transition over from, from scouting to maybe making some moves. Um, but not everybody probably knows what a mock scrape is. I don't know. Maybe they all do, but I'm going to have you explain it. Um, we'll start there just for anybody that's maybe never used one. They've heard of it. They don't really know what it is. Um, so the mock scrape that I'm referring to is uh, a, a chunk of grapevine. So, you know, you see it in all the field or all the woods, excuse me, up here and around this area, just wild grapevine, nothing special, nothing fancy. Um, and I take about an inch to inch and a quarter diameter piece, depending on how long I need it, six foot or so long, take a chunk of that. Um, 
you know, I, I heard of this from Jeff Sturgis, White Tail Habitat Solutions, as everybody knows that name, uh, several years ago. And I tried it because I've tried ribbon in the past. I've tried rope in the past. And it just never had the draw that this grapevine, for whatever reason, seems to do. And I, I believe it's because of the rigidity of the vine. They like it because it's just stiffer and they can really rub their glands and their faces on it to get their scent on it. Um, because the rope, they kind of nudge it, but they don't seem to really get after it like they do on this grapevine. <clears throat> so let me, again, let, me stop, let me stop you and back you up there because I don't want to get ahead. I don't want to get ahead. Um, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I, before we talk about um, the 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 scrape and the vine and all that stuff, Maybe maybe it's just a thing here, but can you just like explain like what a simple mock scrape is? Because I want people to really know like the difference between like there, there's 20 different ways to make a mock scrape. And I want you to like really explain um, about the vine and how you get like different results um, compared to maybe just like a normal mock scrape with like a dripper or whatever. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So a, a mock scrape is just a fake um identification post for deer you know for them to lay their scent down at a place and every deer likes to stop in there and kind of check in see who's in the neighborhood see what's up and you'll get everything from fawns all the way up to mature deer all marking on these um these mock vines that i'm putting in mock scrapes um all it is is for them to communicate to each other of of who's in the area and how long ago kind of thing so there's tons of different ways out there for people to do it. I don't claim to be the expert on any of them. Um, some people use uh, synthetic scents or fake scents. I don't use any scents at all. All I use is that vine in a perfectly placed area hmm. and the deer find it on their own. And I'm telling you, I have literally hundreds of pictures of vines within eight to 12 hours being hit by the very first deer. With nothing on them, I'm not putting any scent on them, no anything. Um, I'll clear the area around at the bottom of it, so I'm putting them on. I'm putting them on known travel intersections. So if I see a couple of good um, paths crossing, going into one of those inside corners of a field or into uh, a thicket, any kind of you know really good trail intersections that you know they're there right in the center of that thing. So any deer that's coming down that trail either goes around it or investigates what it is. Um, of course, you got to kind of pay attention to the trees that are around you. But I like to do about a five foot, six foot piece of grapevine. Either use ropes from trees around you to get it way up in the air or pull down a sapling, use a limb overhanging, whatever you have in that location to use and tie that piece of vine up to where the bottom of the vine is about hip height to knee height from the ground, more like hip height from the ground. Mm. And I put that right on the trails intersection or a heavily used trail, even if it's just one singular path. And then I'll put a trail camera generally on the, the south side so that you don't get false triggers from the sun and from you know as much stuff. And I'll put a camera right on it. Again, six feet up, slightly tilt down, and right on top of that vine. And it is... I'm a firm believer and I've got a ton of trail camera videos and pictures to back up how well they're used. And I've got some really nice bucks on them regularly. Like they come to that area 
to mark on that that vine. So it's a it's a great tool to use for scouting in the summer right now, all the way through season. Hey guys, real quick ad from our sponsors over at Buzzard Roost Saddles. Buzzard Roost Saddles are proudly made in the USA and their independent angle adjustments on the top and bottom panels provide the ultimate comfort for those long sits. Buzzard Roost stands by their motto, we ain't fancy, and they help you achieve your goal while keeping things simple. You can connect with Buzzard Roost Saddles on Facebook and Instagram, or you can visit their website at buzzardroostsaddles.com. You got those pictures up on your Instagram? I do. I have quite a few of them. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's J A B underscore outdoors. Uh, if you want to look it up, uh, Jake's Instagram. Um, so, so I am a big mock scrape guy. I've used them since I was a young kid. My dad's a big mock scrape guy, and maybe it's just me or my family. Maybe everybody's this way, but um, I kind of went down the rabbit hole with mock scrapes. They sell like grave digger where you like put the fake dirt in there and the drippers and have all these Mm -hmm. scents and all this shit you can buy. And before you know it, you're walking out of the local farm store with like $200 worth of scent. But I, this year saw um, a guy take, I don't know. It looks like one of those like little containers you get a a Chinese food soup, like big plastic container. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but he fills it up with urine and he, he ties the rope on there and he dips it in and it sucks up like half of it. Well, I was like, golly, it's going to cost me like $50 to try this out for the first time. But I've never heard of the vine thing with no scent. So what's the deal? I mean, why is everybody spending less money on scent if we don't need it? Well, I mean, it, it goes back to the last episode when we talked about scent killer. I don't I'm not a believer in it. The you know dog tests have proven time and time again it doesn't work it doesn't slow them down and if a dog can smell it deer can smell it so I stopped throwing money at it and then I started doing the same thing with don't get me wrong I bought into the tinks you know dough and heat I bought into the scrape rubs all that kind of stuff and I've just seen too many negative responses for me mm-hmm. to justify buying it it's Maybe somebody's had better luck or had some magic product that works, but I am yet to have one that beats natural. In all situations, natural trumps everything, to, in, in my opinion. Now, maybe you already told me, but are you um, disturbing the ground underneath it? Are you getting it going initially? Yep, and that's that's solely a visual thing for the long time. You know, for the all summer, I put mine in pretty much right before green up if I have time. Right now, you can put one out right now and still get the same results out of it, given you put it in the right area. But <clears throat> yes, I'll clean uh, just like a scrape that you see in rut time or summertime of them marking their territories, if you will, and communicating that way. Clean it out for a visual. They know to go look at it to check it out. But most of the time, I don't have any deer actually urinating in it until pre-rut. When that pre-rut starts to kick in, most of the mature bucks that come up to it start to urinate in it. You know, they're they're telling the other big bucks in the area, I'm here, you know. So it, it's been really cool seeing the trail cameras of, of that, seeing how they use it differently as the season progresses and as you get into rut, how, how much they, they use it. Yeah, it kind of starts off – I know a lot of people don't know – that deer like have scent posts and all that stuff all year round so it kind of starts out as like a scent post 
and they're like familiar with it. And then it's like, we can also use this for a scrape. So um, do you take those down after the season? You leave no. them up all year. No, I have the same vines going now for the, my oldest one is four years. Four, I think it's four years. He has three or four years. So it's, you don't have to mess with them. And don't get me wrong. I've had a couple of them dry out and break. And then you got to change it because if it's too tall, they're not, they don't mess with it. If it's, you know, too long, they, they don't seem to like it as much. So it's really about that hip height that you want it. And they'll just, they'll rub it right down. So it's smooth. It's pretty amazing how they work it and use it and push against it. And how many deer will hit it. I'll have groups of does come in. Every single doe will hit it. Fawns will hit it. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we talked about this because <laughs> I've actually been thinking about like really digging into my strategy for the year and like where I'm going to put scrapes and which piece of public I'm going to go in and all this stuff. But I've been thinking about scrapes the past couple of days. So it's funny you brought this up. Um, but I do hunt a lot of places with those kind of vines. So uh, I think I know what I'm going to be trying out this year and maybe saving myself some coin from buying all the, that junk ass deer piss that doesn't work at the local farm store from 2009. It's been sitting on some shelf somewhere, but yeah, yeah. That, um, do you think how much you think the, the, um, the material matters? I mean, you're using a vine. What if we take a sapling and, and cut the top off and we just have a sapling trunk and hang that you think it matters or you think it's, think it's a grapevine specifically. You know, I've hung branches. I can't say that I've used like the, the stub end of a branch. And they they have used the branches before. Like I use those generally in like a food plot or the edge of a food plot where I can yeah. trim, trim the computers around. But um, and just still haven't had as good a luck as I'm on the grapevine. I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure. I guess I'll have to try that because what is the difference really other than maybe the texture or I don't yeah. know. Maybe quite a bit bigger. If you had a tree the size of that vine, it'd probably be pretty heavy because they're they're pretty round, right? About yeah, about the size of a baseball or maybe a little smaller. No, you're you're going smaller than that. You're only going about an inch around. You know, inch. Oh, really? Inch, that small? Yeah. Inch to inch and a quarter around. That's that's all they seem to really like. You get much bigger, and I haven't had as good a success. And then small ones, they seem to break them. They, you know, they'll get into them. I like to have mine tied up pretty tight. I don't like them swaying in the breeze to trip my cameras off. And because I've had the best response to ones that they can kind of lean into and really kind of work at. And you'll see it, you know, get stuck in their horns or go down their ears and their face, the does, and they'll really push into it. So I'm pretty picky on how I tie mine up so that they're pretty tight and they're not moving around a whole bunch. Now I'm glad I asked that because, uh, I'd have been texting you saying I don't get any deer on my cameras and I'd be using a, a, a six or an eight inch around vine yeah. thinking, what the hell is he messing with me or what? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, I'm glad you, so about one inch, one yeah. inch to two inches in diameter, maybe oh, one inch to inch and a quarter is about max. I mean, you really oh, want to really? stay in that, you know, that size area. And <clears throat> like I said, it depends on what you have for overstory or what you're tying it to. If you yeah. have a limb where you can hide the end of it, I do that. That's what I'd rather see. I don't want them to see gaps. I don't want the the vines penduluming out there on like a dangle. Oh, okay. Piece of so you try you try to tuck it into the trail somehow. Yeah, I I try to pick that spot that has some limbs overhanging that I can tie it to the end of the limbs up pretty decent, you know. And that way, that's that's their spot in the area. I take off some of the limbs around so that there's not 
many other ones at that height. So that, that way they're, they're liking it. And then I'll also not like get it down to bare dirt, but I'll kind of get everything out and around it, maybe six feet if I can so that they can work it from all angles because I've, mm-hmm. I also have videos of them, you know, kind of rubbing and spinning as they're rubbing. Cause you know, they're paying attention to the vine so much that they're just kind of moving around and they don't like to trip over things when they're doing that. I've had a few of them like spook off and run away and I'm like, Oh, I got to get that limb out of there. Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's nothing, but I think that is another key component of it so that they can see it. Also, I want the deer to be able to lock on. And I have videos of that too, where, Within, I think this one was 12 hours or 11 hours, a doe is down the edge, locks onto that vine, and comes right straight into that vine. So she saw it, and she knew that something was different, something was strange, and she was the first one to hit that particular vine. Yeah, it's, um, let's see here. Do you ever mess with them? I mean, obviously, like, if you put them out now, it's going to be really green, as the leaves die off and stuff, you just kind of, if you've got it tucked into, let's say a tree overhanging or whatever, do you ever adjust it according to how the woods changes, I guess? No, I can't say. I mean, that makes sense that if you tie it into a, a limb that has all leaves as its weight, that as it lose, you loses those leaves, it would, it would lift. I can't say that I've run into that situation yet. You know, I'll normally take a few of the small branches. If it's on a smaller one, I'll tie a few of them together and, you know, you got a long enough vine and that's kind of pulling on it too. That's got some weight. So yeah, it naturally kind of holds them down a little bit, but I've not had any lift up or move that I've had to readjust other than breaking. I've had to, you know, redo some. Now, how, how far apart mm-hmm. um, do you generally put them? Are you putting them like 10 feet, a hundred yards? Nope. So I'm using them in, in key locations. Um, of course you can, as far as I'm aware, it's, it's legal to do this on private or public land, but you know, all it is is rope. That's all I'm using. I'm not using any pegs, any, anything into the trees, any stands, just using rope to hold branches where I want them and hold that vine in. So you're only a few dollars into it, but I put them anywhere. There's those, those just funnels that you're looking for. So even next to Oak ridges, um, points of, points of heavy cover that come out and I see there's a heavy trail coming out of that, that cover, that bedding area. I'll put one, you know, just outside of that, knowing that that's going to be one of the first stops they make coming out of their bedding area. And also I have them in which again, the guy that come up with this, Jeff Sturgis one at pretty much every bow stand that I have. There's one pretty much everywhere. That's how, so mind you, there's only like I don't know, eight stands that I have that have these, but those are the key eight stands that I bow hunt out of. And they're, depending on the location and how the terrain is, really dictates how far apart they're going to be. If you have long field edges, I have them farther apart. So I have them again on those inside corners, those anywhere that the deer are going to have to funnel down to. So it doesn't matter a ravine. If a ravine or a river funnels the deer into a tight spot, you have a good trail it's a good spot for it uh not only maybe everybody hopefully everybody would be excited about this i'm so used to having to to take deer pee and and scrape drippers you'd be surprised how much money i spent on scrape drippers from them getting stolen off of public land like who steals a scrape dripper wow but 
I can buy me uh, a five dollar hundred feet of paracord now, and that's all I really need because the vines and everything are out there. Yeah, I'm excited to try that, man. I'm always, you know, unless something like truly works for me, like flawlessly every time, which it never will in hunting because you just no. never know. Um, I like to change it up. Yeah. 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 No, don't get me wrong. There's been a, a lot of them that I've put out that just were not as successful, and, yeah. and you learn from that. Of you know, again, by your scouting of where they're coming from backtrack into the woods a little ways and put one in that mingling spot. And you can kind of start narrowing down on really key intersections or really key corridors on where the deer are at. And that's, that's again, how I've used them also over the years of narrowing down certain spots. So um, I have to know since you, you, you've been using these mock scrapes for a while, right? Since you're a kid or is it something? Um, you know, I've used the, the random, yeah you know types over the years of course yeah since forever ago you know from being ridiculous and just pouring it out like crazy all over the ground to not even having a branch over top of it you know all that kind of stuff i've gone through all those trials and errors and figured it out and listened to other people you know don't get me wrong it's a lot of other people's experience too that have guided me on certain things that i'm doing but <clears throat> yeah tried them all and like i said i've used ribbon that was that never worked at all. I've Too used floppy. rope. Yeah, and it just I don't know. It just they didn't touch that at all. The rope I had a few deer hit it, but it was really more. It seemed to me more like they were just curious of what is this, you know. And I've used small rope, just kind of like what is this, and then they just walk away from it. But the the vine, cheap, free, seems to be the best. I think it's got a lot to do with. Um you know, as a vine sits in the woods, it soaks up the smell of that woods. As a rope sits in the the local farm store, it soaks up um, all the smell. Like the farm store here, we have a roll king. I don't know if you've mm -hmm. ever heard of those, yeah. but they have, they have popcorn they give you for free when you come in the door. So I'm sure all the rope there, if you're buying your rope there, it's probably scented full of popcorn. So maybe, yeah, that's true. Yeah. maybe that's a thing, like just keeping it natural. I mean... Yeah, it could be. That could be it. I mean, look at their sense of smell. I wouldn't put anything past them. Now, do you wear gloves when you put it up? No, no, no. Don't get me wrong. I'm not handling the bottom of it a lot other yeah. than when I'm sawing it off. When I'm when I'm cutting it, I'll grab and, and saw it off and carry it around or wherever I need to go with it. But nope. I mean, what, what is it? I think one of the dog tests said like human scent was a couple hours or something like that at the strongest. Yeah. So after that, I'm I'm not too worried about it because the odds of them being there and then they got to get right on it to smell it, of course. So you, as time progresses, I don't, they just, they're not there that fast. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've had some that are pretty quick and surprisingly fast, but you got a couple hours to play with it. So I don't I'm, worry about scent. I've never worried about that either. I think like if you touch something and then it rains, like it's gone now, something that's been, maybe sitting in your house if you smoke or something for if you let's say for example i would be less concerned about touching um something on a mock scrape than i would be if uh, i dropped my glove and i smoked in my house and left it by my tree stand because i feel like it soaks it in i feel like it lasts so much longer when it's like soaked into something so it's kind of what i was getting at about the rope maybe it's just like mm. yeah um so as far as like taking inventory and stuff, maybe we'll go with a, a percentage here. We'll either go with um, before you did the, the vine method, 
And then after you've done the vine method, I guess, would you say that it's went up like 50%? Like as far as your mock scripts being more successful as like putting cameras out over? Oh, if you're talking, you know, mock vines compared to the rope and compared to ribbon and compared to just natural things yeah. that I've tried over the past, it's I'm probably 90% better. Really? Yeah. 90%? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you'll see a lot of my trail camera pictures. It's all over the vines. And it's just because I've been so sold on it over the years and how much activity there is on them that absolutely more consistent, way more consistent all year long from spring green up all the way through way past rut. There's deer on them. Now, don't get me wrong. There is ebbs and flows of when they're busier than other times. Um, but you can guarantee that come pre-rut, there's, there's some nice bucks checking them. There's definitely some nice bucks checking them. So that's how I use it come hunting season of knowing where they're going to be coming back to, too, because that's a good spot for them to tell and test who's been around and what's happening. All right. I guess for anybody that's not sold on a mock scrape yet, um, I, I personally, maybe it's luck. I don't know. I've killed quite a few deer over mock scrapes. Now, mm -hmm. I will say um, th they probably, they weren't, it was more during the rut and it wasn't like um, a patterning thing for mm -hmm. me. It was just yeah. like they were cruising and hitting mock scrapes and they happened to be stopping and smelling it. But your your thing here is a little different because it sounds like maybe you could pattern some deer off of that too initially in the early season. Yep. Um, Absolutely. But if somebody if somebody is not sold on a mock scrape, why should they be? I mean. Because of the cost to return ratio again like you said 100 foot and you're going to use 10 20 foot depending if you have to do you know, 20 foot you're pulling trees down you're kind of making the location to hang from because you really want it as close to the center of that trail as possible so that they they kind of have to acknowledge it um so you're you're into it just a couple of dollars. That's that's it. I mean, don't get me wrong. You better look at your state regulations to see whether you can cut it or not. I don't yeah. know. Who knows what they have? Government's crazy anymore. So, luckily on on private land, I can cut it, and I've got it plentifully in a few places. So I I'll cut and take chunks from here to 400 acres away and use the the vine, and they hit it the same. It's not like it's specific to the area or whatever so maybe you should quit your job and just hack that stuff up and sell it <laughs> <laughs> it's free there's no market out there once people know what it is oh it's you'll see it everywhere so it's it's at least in michigan it's all over it's the classic vine that's growing up to, to canopy out over top of the trees with the grape leaves the grape looking leaves and obviously make sure you're not touching poison ivy poison oak Big difference in vine there. So yeah. I know what you're identifying. I wish I could show pictures or whatever. I actually I got a chunk of it literally sitting out beside my shop right now that I could, you know, show. But yeah, yeah, I I, I would love I'd love to see it. And you can uh, let's see here. Um, I want to make sure I read it properly. Um, if you want to post one, maybe take a picture and put it on Instagram. Uh, his Instagram is jab underscore outdoors. So. Uh, yeah, we can look on there. Yeah, if you want to grab it, can you grab it real quick? I got it out behind my shop. I could. Yeah. Well, I I'll, I'll wait. Yeah, everybody right, wait. I'll, I'll go get it. Okay. 
All right, all right. He's back. He's back. Yeah, we'll, yeah. Edit, we'll edit this in right here. Um, yeah. Yeah, so it's about an inch. Um, we're on anybody that's listening somewhere other than YouTube. We're looking at this vine right now, so um, it'll be up on YouTube as well if you want to see it. But yeah, yeah. Now, so, do they do they rub that stuff a lot? Um, they ever rub what? it in half? No, no. See, that's the weird thing about it to me. Seems like they would really want to. Um, I'll try to kind of visually paint the picture. It basically looks like a um, a sapling, but it looks like somebody took it and shredded it all up. Like it's got stuff hanging off. It looks like it's ready to be rubbed. I mean, like it sh they should be like, what's the deal with that? Right. You know, I, I, it's just the, the outside bark of that. That actually is an older piece that's been sitting out behind my shop that I was going to put in somewhere and never got time. So it's a little more frayed than usual. Okay. Um, I can't say like, you. it's funny that you mentioned that. I don't know that I've ever seen like an actual rub or anything on a grapevine other than the mock scrapes that I put out. It's not like they're seeking them in the woods, you know, like they, they like certain types of trees sometimes certain bucks do. Um, yeah. I don't think I've ever seen anything like that, but I'm gonna have to pay attention now to see, but. Uh, something, something else I was going to mention that you, you said don't pull on any poison Oak or poison Ivy. Um, you may be aware of this or may not be, maybe it's just deer in Southern Indiana. I don't know, but. Deer love poison ivy. So if you find some poison ivy, you might find deer eating on it. Yep. Have you experienced anything like that? Watching yeah, deer absolutely. eat poison ivy? Yep. Oh, yes. Yeah. At certain times of the year. I mean, it's not all the time, but yeah, oh, absolutely. Early spring. Yep. I've seen them completely just destroy patches of it. Yep. That must have some crazy kind of nutrients. I don't know. They must, uh, they either have itchy tongues or they're not allergic <laughs> to it. One of the two. It must not bother them because I've seen it over and over. So yeah, they definitely will, will take it. So mock scrapes, everybody, mock scrapes. So with all this mock scrape talk, you got any cool stories about hunting over mock scrapes? Yeah, actually, again, this buck right here, oh, I'm backwards again. This buck I had on several mock scrape locations, and that's this is the one that I told you about that on the last episode that I literally had patterned down to where I truly felt odd after I shot it. Cause it was like, man, I almost feel like I cheated. Like I really use technology so much that I cheated. And I really felt that way. Cause I really could call this deer. I totally Babe Ruth when I was going to have sightings on them. And when I actually shot the deer, I took off from work called in sick because I said, I'm going to shoot this deer tomorrow. And I had, I just know it's going to be out. And it was just, literally like i i just knew everything was going to happen and it happened and i was like <laughs> but yeah i had him on so he actually worked a series of three uh, mock vines that i have out which happens to be on the northwest corner of my property that i can hunt about the dead center based off of how some fields are so it's more ag to the southwest and then it's a wood lot into the center surrounded by ag so that I know that their travel is going to be kind of northwest to southeast through my property because they're not going to go to the ag on, on the outside as much until night. So then I'd have a, a one in the center of that area and then one at the southeast end of the woodlot. And I could time when he was going to be at each one of those mock vines and when he was going to hit the picture. It was incredible. Like by the time I hit the first picture of him, I'm like, I'm going to have a picture of him in 35 minutes. 35 minutes on the minute 
you know, I mean, obviously not on the minute, but it was well, <laughs> it was within enough time where I did seriously question, you know, how, how am I hunting this deer like this? I feel like I'm, I'm dirty. I did, man. I felt dirty. Like I was cheating this deer. Now let, let me ask you this. Would you have killed him without all that technology? Um, you know, I guess the confidence in me would say yes, but obviously it's hunting and there are so many other variables to all of that. So, okay. Let me, let me, let me change it. Would you have found that deer, um, and been able to, to pattern that deer? Yeah. Maybe not kill him. I definitely would have known for sure his early season before he kind of switched what he was doing. Um, yeah, because off of velvets, uh, sightings and watching, he was a pretty patternable deer. He was, I should have, you know, if I named him like big, you know, names, he should have been like the Hollywood or whatever. Cause he just did not care about cameras. He was pretty open. You know, you'd see him in the fields, grandpa and grandma would call me and be like, Hey, there's a big buck standing out in the alfalfa field. I'm like, yeah, I know I'm looking at him right now. And so he was just that deer that wasn't too afraid of moving traveling and being out there a little bit and covering some ground so yeah maybe maybe if it's getting too easy maybe you shouldn't get those cell cams maybe you should go to a recurve or something yeah no don't (laughs) get me wrong it's not too easy that was that was one out of a lot of deer that was like that you know what i mean i've never had a deer that was like that he he was clearly using my couple of areas that i believe he was betting at as his core that's where he was at and he was there very regularly because I never bumped him, never pushed him, never sent, uh, sent any of my scent over top of that swamp or their bed net and just left that core alone, knowing that I, I needed to hunt the outsides of it on, on the specific winds that wouldn't push it into the bedding. And it was, it was pretty awesome. Actually on my wife's birthday, she let me go out hunting for this deer and I had a killer opportunity at it, but I just didn't feel comfortable when I drew back of my limb clearing a limb when I let go that's self-control yeah and I well you know I mean if you're not going to take a good ethical shot that's where you got to step out of the ball game as far as I'm concerned you know you I owe it to the animal to do everything within my power of checklist to making sure I put as good as possible shot don't get me wrong it happens to us all that something goes awry a limb you don't see whatever but I just was like I just knew when I drew back I'm like oh no this I didn't trim this far enough. I can't shoot this. And I knew that path was a potential path. He would come out of this particular Tamarack swamp that he was in. And it was just watching him walk away. I just, I said, there it was like, you really only get one or two chances at a big buck in Michigan like that before it either figures you out or someone else gets it or whatever. And I just had this feeling it was, dang it. There's my opportunity. And then that next, you know, situation happened where a, a specific cold front was coming in with a moon phase. And I said, you know what? This morning, he's coming back to bed late. I know it. I'm sitting in this tree. He's going to be there. And it was just like everything drew up. He come right down the path that I set the whole entire tree stand up for. Shot him at 10 yards. I mean, it wasn't any more than 12 yards. And just center punched him, watched him fall 40 yards away. And it was pretty darn amazing. Yeah, it was, it was, it, it was interesting. Again, like I said, I remember up there just like, yes, it, it happened. I, you know, it, I can't believe this. And my wife's even like, you're calling in for work to go hunting. And I'm like, 
honey, you don't understand. Like, this is his pattern. He's going to be there. He's going to be there. And sure as heck, I call her and she's like, are you serious? I'm like, yes, I got him. Did you watch him fall? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, he ran, I'm going to say max 20 yards. Yeah, I'm, never, I'm never that lucky. I, I've, I've seen a couple of them fall, but they always seem to want to run to the thick shit really fast. And I'm like listening and like I'm hunting by some highway or something. And like I'm listening for the crash and then, you know, yeah. ambulance drives by. So yeah. uh, that's always cool to watch them fall. Just oh, like, it is. Mm. You've always as- got that doubt, you know, after the shot, you've always like, mm-hmm. like even on the perfect shot, you're like, did I shoot him in the ass? Like, I don't yeah. remember. I can was never it too remember. Far back? Was it just a too far back? You yeah. Push him? Oh, I get it. I definitely get it. Yeah. So um, I guess kind of to tie it up here, um, you know, you're, you're scouting and you're planning and doing all this stuff. Um, what's kind of your goals and your plans for 2022 as far as, as deer season, like um, going into it, maybe not like scouting and wanting to do all that stuff, but like, you have a certain deer you're trying to kill or I've got a couple of them right now that I've got my eyes on. And one of them I'm, I'm hoping and praying it was, it's the one from last year. My, my grandpa sh- had an unfortunate incident with shooting at just around here. A, a mega. I mean, I'm guessing it was in the one seventy plus one eighties and I had lots of trail cam pictures of it. And I, I got a picture of it that night going into a swamp and I said, you know, we're, it's a coming out one of these directions and sure enough, it come out towards grandpa and he took a shot on it and it just was a, an unfortunate event that happened to that deer getting away, but you know, pushing it basically got pushed and it got away, but we had pictures of it after season alive. So I have hope. And by the couple of these pictures, you know, they're still not done growing. There's still a good month of growing left on them. And it's a, it's already one that I'm going, Oh, wow. You know, so it's, it's a big one. And then I got another one that's, I'm hoping he'll get into the, the upper one forties, low one fifties when he's all finished out. So, so far I've got three or four of them that I'm watching that are shooters. But again, that does not mean they're staying here. I've seen it time and time again and, and talking with neighbors where they're like, well, this buck just showed up. I'm like, yeah, that's because he's been at my place, you know, in my area all summer long. And then, deer that he was watching show up in my place yeah flip flop so i've never figured that out really why they do the summer and winter grounds but they do it i'm a true believer in it yeah um it's funny you spend all this time um i'm actually let me word this so it doesn't sound like um i don't know grouchy or something but I'm switching up my thing this year. I love to run trail cameras and like a lot of guys do you spend all this time. And then like sometimes a deer transition and you might watch a deer for five, six, four, five months. And then um, you have like a month to kill him before he goes to a different property. So this year I'm as much as I like to look at trail camera pictures, I'm not putting them out um, until about a three or four weeks before season. I I feel like, I feel like sometimes I get like, I'll see a deer and I'll get him patterned in like June, July. And then like time comes to hunt. And I just like, I'm still fixated on that deer, but it's like, everything has changed. You know what I mean? Yeah. That Cause it has. Sense. You're, you're yeah. absolutely right though. At least in my opinion, it's because it has, because I've seen it time and time again, where the deer transitioned to that best quality food at that time. 
that they can get to. So they definitely move around. But yeah, you know, that's I, one of my goals this year is to have my food plots put in, um, you know, specifically for in certain areas, but based off their uh, prior travel paths and stuff. So that, that way it takes some of that inconsistency out. Uh, putting in that food plot so that they have that first feed of the afternoon is what they really want or what they crave having that good source of food and they know it's going to be there. Yeah. I think, I think like the, the long-term thing is like, I see a deer and I'm like, well, he was there at one point, but like, yeah, he was two months ago and it'll, it'll literally stop me from going to another property where I have a camera where it's got like a decent buck that I would shoot, but I'd still be like, I'd be super, that buck was on this camera. That buck was on this camera. I know he's going to show back up. And then like you look down and you've been trying to kill this buck for two months and you haven't seen him. And I don't know. I think just for me, I think it's going to be a better route, but I'm going to kind of miss looking at velvet bucks on camera. For yeah. See, I just, months. I've gotten to just know to not put a ton of stock into the yeah. pictures right now. You know, of mm -hmm. course it's nice to see them hitting my mock scrapes. It's nice to see them, you know, using the terrain when they are using it, but I also don't say, oh, yeah, look, here's these five bucks. They're here. Yeah. I'm going. That's. I think that's. I think I'm glad we touched on that because I think that's something a lot of new hunters do. And I, you know, even being a more experienced hunter, I mean, I've been hunting since I was three or four years old. Um, I would fixate on those pictures, but it's really like, I think a lot of people do that. Um, yeah, they put too much stock, mm -hmm. as you said, like into um you know summertime mid 90 degree weather photos yeah you know the biologists say that the the whitetail in velvet doesn't like thick cover because it's it's hitting its antlers which are painful and stuff as they're growing and damaging them and you know causing them pain so they look for different terrain and i can say that i see that on my farm in the in the mm -hmm. east side is mature with less understory and i actually have more velvet pictures of more mature deer in big bachelor groups on that side than my really thick areas that I know I'm going to be hunting come fall. And then you get to that transition where they start going hard horn and all of a sudden you'll start seeing them coming back to those super thick tamarack swamps that I hunt and, uh, you know, brushy sides of fields. Now, before, before we kind of end this here, this just came to mind. I'm going to ask you like how, let's see if I can word it properly how old um is too old for a trail cam picture as far as like using that to hunt like two weeks like a month i mean obviously like even pictures from four months ago are going to give you intel but like if you're trying to focus on a deer and you had him on camera i don't know two weeks ago and then he hasn't like shown up since like, is that worth hunting? Like where's kind of the cutoff, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I, I can't say that I've established like a certain cutoff date, but I've definitely found myself doing that, you know, getting a picture, a random picture of a, a real nice buck. And it's like, Oh, okay. I got to get into this area and kind of poke around and see what he's doing and try to get another picture of him and, you know, not get another picture of him. But yeah. there's also times if it's early in season to me, he came there for a reason, so he will come back at some point. Yeah, sure, it may not be every three days, every four days, every five days. It might be only once every you know couple of weeks or something, but yeah, he's going to come back to that spot at some point. So you can kind of use that information to knowing. And then not only that, I've had deer where I've got one picture or so, and then a neighbor has hunted him a little too hard. 
and pushed him. So he stopped betting in his other area, and then all of a sudden I got another picture, another two pictures, and it was right where I was hunting off of that one picture. So I was already on top of that deer and had a you know, wound up getting a really good chance at it, but never wound up making it happen. So, Yeah, I think it's definitely like it's it's um, depends on the season and all that stuff and like how food changes and stuff. I think for me, the reason I ask is I'm going to try to hunt something I'm going to focus on this year is hunting more hot sign, which also means trail camera pictures. So I'm trying to figure out where that line kind of is for me, um, where I'm going to be like, this place is kind of cooled off or this place is hot. But I think like through running cameras over the years, I feel like two weeks is like a good cycle for deer to, they're either going to show up or they're not within two weeks. I would. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be on any sort of pattern. Yeah. If you're using the camera for scouting, yes, I would say in two weeks, you should be able to have a good idea of what's using that section. Now that's not to say that your camera isn't just a hundred yards off one way or the other. It's not, not rule out the whole entire area because of that. You might just have to move and look for, like you said, that hot sign, the trail that has the most tracks. The, you, know, the, you know, the grass is more beat down on this trail than the trail next to it. It makes a big difference. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I Last year I had a pretty decent season, but I just, I don't know. I always try to go into the next season with like, try to do this better, try to do that better. And last year I moved around a lot more, more than I like normally have on public land. I usually put up a stand and I'll hunt it you know, for a while, but last year I just moved around, sat on the ground, hung out of a tree by my toenails, you know, whatever. And I, I just, I had better luck with that. So I think I'm going to focus more on my cameras in that direction uh, this year too, but uh, we'll wrap it up here. Um, I appreciate you, you coming back on. Uh, it's been great catching up. I remember talking about, you know, we'll get you back on in the summer and, and we'll cover some of that stuff. So like I said, it only seems like it was a couple weeks ago, but that was a long time ago. Time flies. Can you uh, tell everybody uh, one more time? I know we mentioned it a couple times. Your Instagram, because they're going to be looking for pictures of uh, those bucks, trail cameras with the vine and a picture of the vine. So Yeah, yeah. No, um, J-A-B underscore outdoors. Just uh, my initials, nothing fancy. That's pretty much me just cut and dry and – You'll see a lot of pictures up there. Don't get me wrong. I'm not posting every single day. I'm not posting every single video I have. There's He's keep keeping us. it on lockdown. He's keeping it secret, and he's not going to tell you where he lives in Michigan either. Right. <laughs> I, I, I will tell you that I, you know, there are certain bucks that I don't post pictures of. You know, it's just, I don't know. I just always feel like there are shady-ass people out there. So yeah. I, I try to keep that. For my neighbor's sake, too, you know, I don't want them to have any trouble either, but uh, – yeah, so thanks for having me on, man. I really appreciate it. It's fun to uh, get caught up, and and I really do hope people use the mock scrape and some trail cameras to their advantage um, for scouting, and, and don't be afraid to to try it. You guys better try that vine out. Um, anybody listening, better try try the the vine over the you know the scrape thing because I'm going to do it this year. That's the only thing I'm going to run. I'm not buying any more drippers. I'm not buying frozen pee offline. I'm not going to the farm store and buying nine-year-old uh, deer pit has been, you know, on a dusty shelf. I'm, I'm just going to go light and uh, cheap this year, and we'll see how that works out. I'm telling you, over the years, I've, I've figured it out. The more you put out there, the more them big bucks start to piece together you out there. They don't, they don't take kindly to that, so you're on the right path there. 
we all need to start hunting more like uh, our ancestors, you know, like we don't really have anything but something to kill it with and something to skin it with. Like no. all that other shit you're taking in the woods is just, it's, it's, it's uh, weighing you down. So, yeah. all right, man, I'll let you get out of here. I appreciate it again. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Yep. See you, man. Hey everyone. Thanks for tuning into another episode of the hunt the wild podcast. If you enjoyed the show and it's brought you some sort of value, I'd love if you could give me a rating and a review. Just a few seconds of your time can help me better understand the type of content you all enjoy, and it would mean the world to me to hear from all of you.